Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books. This episode's featured release is State of Shock by M. Todd Henderson. When John T. Turner is murdered just days before she takes the mantle as the new dean of Rockefeller University Law School in Chicago, Royce Johnson is approached to help solve the murder. Recently released from prison, the ex-FBI agent has his own problems. Still, he takes the job. Soon, Johnson finds himself at the intersection of higher education, Chicago politics, big money, and murder. Johnson races up a river of corruption running from deep pocket donors of the university to north side developers and a south side alderman who is heir to the throne in City Hall. In his desperation, he turns to the one lawyer who can help him, the former Rockefeller student named Johnson mistakenly framed for murder on his last case. State of Shock is available from Down and Out's website, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, or ask it for it from your favorite bookseller. This is Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling and original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own, but others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these lives, as we just proved, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season two. This season contains adaptations of stories published in the 1800s. These stories are some of the first to be considered mysteries. For that reason, this season is called The Originators. Today's story is about the costs of greed, arrogance, and pride. This is T. Sawyer, Esquire, an abridged telling of Tom Sawyer, Detective, by Mark Twain. All right, Jack, so this story today takes place shortly after Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn free their friend Jim from Tom's aunt and uncle's farm in Arkansas. Since that told me nothing about the story, Uh, the setting of the story, you know, not being like a literature person. Um, I went and Googled what was the setting for Huck Finn, and the answer was it dated like 40 or 50 years ago. So The Adventures of Huck Finn was published in 1884, making the setting the 1830s to the 1840s. Tom Sawyer Detective was published in 1896. Location was a little bit harder to figure out. Tom and Huck lived in the fictional town of St. Petersburg, Missouri. And that's said to really be Hannibal, Missouri, where Mark Twain lived. In Huck Finn, Huck and Jim sailed down the Mississippi from St. Petersburg to Arkansas. Jim and Huck disembarked near the Missouri-Tennessee-Arkansas border. So based on this, like we did in a previous episode, I picked a town that I like the name of. This time I picked Osceola, Arkansas, and that's where our pin is on the map. So the zip code is 72370. It was founded in 1837, so it was around when the story was written. 
and it was incorporated in 1853 with growing steamboat traffic. Travel time from the Royal Observatory, which is home to the Prime Meridian, is about 15 hours. You'd fly from Heathrow to Memphis, and then you would drive about an hour north to Osceola. I hope I'm saying that right and not totally butchering it. Osceola is a only a 90-minute drive to Senatobia, Mississippi, and that's where we had dropped the pin for our second story this season. With us being up here in in uh, northeast Indiana, Jack, when I hear Missouri, I tend to think south, like like way south. So it blew me, you know I'm geographically challenged, that Hannibal is no further south than Indianapolis, the city I go to all the time. And it's hours north, hours north of Evansville, Indiana, which was where I was just a couple weeks ago. Um, you know what we really need, Jack? We need a road trip to all these places that we feature on our stories here. All right, let's talk about some ratings and Goodreads. Personally, I was surprised at them. With over 2,000 ratings, the average is 3.56, which in my opinion, vastly underrates it. 30% of readers rated it a four and 35% a three. So here's one three-star review. I can see why this wasn't as successful as the first two books in the series. It took me a little while to get into, and it was a bit ho-hum in the beginning, but I enjoyed it more as it went on. You have to stretch your mind a little to accept the plot, and of course, the book is a reflection of its, its times and settings. Another three-star reviewer wrote, Fun little romp, if I'm not mistaken, the last written story featuring our friends Tom and Huck. I think there was another one. I enjoyed these one-off tales, the other being the fantastical Jules Verne-esque balloon ride, Tom Sawyer aboard, abroad, I think it's abroad, and half-wish Twain had scribbled more of them, even knowing he was doing them for quick cash. There's nothing wrong with the writer earning a buck. But all things must come to an end eventually. It was good to know you boys because there was nothing like reading the Mark Twain adventures while you're in the middle of the Mark Twain National Forest. Jack, we should go there. Other reviews were similar, but in the actual, most of the reviewers seemed to like the story more than their star ratings, but I guess that just goes to show because, you know, everyone has their own scales. Swing your microphone around and talk a little bit. Uh, I don't want to. <laughs> Let's hear your your shining voice. <laughs> Everyone is aware of the fact that Mark Twain's real name is Samuel Clemens. You know I would. You know, if you asked me on the street, hey, what's Mark Twain's real name? I would definitely say good old Sam Clemington. <laughs> um, but not everyone knows his middle name. And that's correct. Because no one needs to know. It's a cool it's a cool name. You have to share it. I wrote it down for you to share. It's Langhorn. Are you happy? Is With that... the E on the end. Oh my gosh. Foghorn Leghorn. Do you remember that cartoon? Yeah, I just know that it exists. <laughs> Alright. Everyone I wait, did I already no I didn't. They just both start the same. Everyone knows some of Mark Twain's stories were set along in the Mississippi. But not everyone knows. He really was a steamboat pilot. He really was. It took him two years of training to earn the title and position. 
Seems like a lot of work for a lot of nothing. He took the name. I'm kidding. No, that's not. No, that's rude. I didn't actually hear what you said. Well, good. Maybe if I don't enunciate myself in the slightest, any I can just say anything. What was I even talking about? Oh, yeah. It took him two years of training to earn the title and position, and he took the name that the world would know him by from this time of the Mississippi. And a captain, he knew who used the words to... What sentence am I reading? Did I miss a period? <laughs> he took the name that the world would know him by from his time on the Mississippi. And a captain, he knew, who used the words to sign reports. Okay, that's that's a sentence. The words Mark Twain would be called out when the depth of the river measured 12 feet or 2 fathoms. The, what? Oh, yeah. The safe water depth for the big steamboats. Two years to drive a steamboat. Well, I mean, you got people's lives in your hand. You got to learn how to do it. But, like, how much do you have to know? Like, delegate? Come on, delegate, right? <laughs> Two years? Two years. Two years of apprenticing. I mean, I guess it takes a while to do anything nowadays, but still, two years. All right, fine. I guess it's not a lot compared to probably the fact that it's probably more than two years now. Yeah, that I was think still getting, a, yeah, getting a captain's license is like a big deal. Yeah, but of a steamboat. There you go. Yeah. Over his life, Mark Twain did a little bit of everything. He worked as a printer's apprentice, a typesetter. Heck's a typesetter. Um, Like for printing presses? You know, where you put the letters in the position so that when you run it, it that's like old, old, old school technology. Oh, he did that. Uh, he was a steamboat pilot, as we already talked about. A miner, maybe not the 49er. And, well, uh, he was a journalist, writer, speaker, social activist, yada, yada, yada. He learned a lot of money. Oh, he earned a lot of money. And he lost a lot of money in bad investments. That doesn't surprise me. He declared bankruptcy at one point. Uh, only once, though, so that is impressive. Once back on his feet, he paid back his debt, even though it had been wiped out by his bankruptcy. So he was like, hey, I know I declare bankruptcy, and I technically don't owe you, but here, have uh, the 12 books I asked for lunch money back in the grade four. Mm-hmm. Mark Twain traveled the world. He was born. Really. He was. He wouldn't have had fingers otherwise to write. This guy lived everywhere. He was born and raised in Missouri, lived in Nevada, San Francisco, <laughs> San Francisco. He lived in Nevada, San Francisco, Elmira, nee, New and York, nee, and New Hartford, York. Connecticut. That is, none of those places in any way are related to each other. Except that Mark Twain lived in the mall. And he's barely been to Hawaii. When they called the Sandwich Islands, <laughs> they were called the Sandwich Islands, and he worked a bit in London and did extensive traveling around the Mediterranean. He's by far one of the most interesting writers that we've covered. He was everywhere. Mark Twain was quoted a lot, and here are a few of his quotes. <laughs> All right. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's size of the fight in the dog. And we got one of those dogs. Her name's Mia. <laughs> Don't let schooling interfere with your education. That's kind of funny. Buy land. They're not making it anymore. Actually, they are. So did you know that like every year um, we get like a couple centimeters of, uh, of land? I mean, it's underwater, so I guess not really. I didn't know that. But I do know, and is it in some of the, the Gulf countries that they're... They're creating land in the water. Like, 
islands, man-made <laughs> islands. So I guess they are making land again. I know there's a couple countries that are currently losing land due to uh, erosion. And apparently they're slowly warming and losing all that stuff. Oceans come up, eat the land. Anywho, the last one is go to heaven for the climate, go to hell for the company. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it is. It took me a second. I'm not dumb, but come on. <laughs> I can't understand why she walks like a woman and talks like a man. Oh, Lola. All right. Well, we are nearly ready to begin our story. Jack, you can reset your microphone and warm those fingers back up. And I'll explain why we're doing adaptations of these early stories instead of per performing them as they were written. Two main reasons. Usually here is where I say these stories are very cool, but the language from the 1800s is hard. Not true with Twain. His is very easy to read. In fact, today's story is more of an abridging than an adaption, adaptation because his language is so smooth. Second, though, the style and length were not created for listening. They were created for reading. This one was shorter than many others, but it, it's still too long for us. And actually, this is going to be one of our longest podcasts because this story's so cool. Which is stupid. It's not stupid, it's that cool. With these adaptations, we keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative, but update the packaging for easier digestion. This is one that definitely fits our definition of a mystery, as Tom and a sometimes reluctant Huck are unraveling the mystery of who killed, well, you're going to find out in a minute who died. An interesting note, Mr. Twain added a small forward saying that this mystery was his retelling of real events of an old-time Swedish trial. So it's kind of funny that one reviewer said you had to suspend imagination. And here is uh, the author himself saying that this is a true story in some way. And with that, we are ready for T. Sawyer, Esquire. Jack, take us away. Chapter 1, An Invitation for Tom and Huck Well, me and Tom Sawyer had the spring fever, and we had it bad, too. But it weren't any use to think about Tom trying to get away, because, as he said, his Aunt Polly wouldn't let him quit school and go traipsing off somewheres wasting time, so we was pretty blue. We was sitting on his front steps one day, about sundown, talking this way, when out comes his Aunt Polly with a letter in her hand and says... Tom, I reckon you gotta pack up and go now to Arkansas. Your Aunt Sally wants you. They're in considerable trouble down there and they think you and Huck will be a kind of diversion for them. Comfort, they say. There's a neighbor named Brace Dunlap that's been wanting to marry their Benny for three months. And at last they told him point blank once and for all that he couldn't. So he has soured on them and they're worried about it. They tried to please him by hiring his no-account brother to help on the farm when they can't hardly afford it, and they don't want him around anyhow. Who are the Dunlaps? They live about a mile from Uncle Silas's place, Tom says. Brace Dunlap is a long sight richer than any of the others. He's a widower, 36 years old without any children, and he's proud of his money and overbearing, and everybody's just a little afraid of him. Why, Benny's only half as old as he is, and she's just as sweet as lovely as, well, you've seen her. Poor Uncle Silas. Why, it's pitiful him trying to curry favor that way. 
So hard pushed and poor and yet higher in that useless Jupiter Dunlap to pre please his ornery brother. What a name, Jupiter, Aunt Polly says. It's only a nickname, Tom says. I reckon they forgot his real name long before this. He's 27 now and he's tall and lazy and sly and sneaky and rather cowardly too, but kind of good natured and he wears his long hair, hair brown and no beard and hasn't got a scent. Brace boards him for nothing and gives him his old clothes to wear and while well, he despises him. Jupiter's a twin. Jake, he ain't been seen for seven years. He got to Robin when he was 19 or 20 and they jailed him, but he broke jail and got away. Up north here some years. They used to hear about him robbing and burglaring now and then, but that was years ago. He's dead now, at least that's what they say. They don't hear about him anymore. Aunt Polly waved her hand, shooing aside the dead. The thing that is mostly worrying your Aunt Sally is the tempers that that man Jupiter gets your uncle into. Well, Tom was astonished and so was I. Tom says, tempers? Uncle Silas? Land, you must be joking. I didn't know he had any temper. Works him up into perfect rages, your Aunt Sally says. Says he acts as if he really would hit the man sometimes. Says your Uncle Silas is like a changed man on account of all this quarreling. And the neighbors talk about it. And they lay all the blame on your uncle, of course, because he's a preacher and ain't got no business to quarrel. He hates to go into a pulpit, he's so ashamed. And he ain't as popular now as he was. Tom looked at me and me on him on account of there weren't that many that we noticed that was any better than Uncle Silas. Why, Aunt Polly, he was always so good and kind and moony and absent-minded and chuckle-headed and lovable. Why, he's just an angel. What can be the matter, do you reckon? Chapter 2 of Mysteries and Pies Tom and me had powerful good luck because we got a chance in a stern wheeler from away north which was bound for one of them bayous or one horse rivers way down Louisiana way so we could go all the way down the upper Mississippi and all the way down to the lower Mississippi to that farm in Arkansas without having to change steamboats in St. Louis not so very much short of a thousand miles at one pull from the very start, me and Tom allowed that there was somebody sick in the stateroom next to ours because the meals was always toted in there by a waiter. By and by, we asked about it. Tom did, and the waiter said, it was some man, but he didn't look sick. If he was sick, he would pull his clothes off sometime or another. Don't you reckon he would? Well, this one don't. At least he don't ever pull off his boots anyway. The mischief he don't. Not even to go to bed? It was always nuts for Tom Sawyer, a mystery was. If you laid out a mystery and a pie before me and him, you wouldn't have to say, take your choice. It was a thing that would regulate itself. Because in my nature, I've always run to pie. While in his nature, Tom has always run to mystery. People are made different, and it's the best way. Tom says to the waiter, what's the man's name? Phillips, the waiter says, I think he got aboard in Alexandria, up in the Iowa line. To which Tom says, what do you reckon he's a playing? The waiter took to thinking for a minute and then he says, I ain't any notion. I never thought of it. I says to myself, there's another one that runs to pie. 
time, he weren't done. Anything peculiar about him? The way he acts or talks? No, nothing, the waiter says, except he seems so scary and he keeps his door locked day and night both. When you knock, he won't let you in till he opens the door a crack and sees who it is. By Jiminy, that's interesting. I'd like to get a look at him. Tom studied over it and then he says, Looky here, you lend me your apron and let me take his breakfast in the morning. I'll give you a quarter. Well, in the morning, we both put our aprons on and got a couple of trays of truck, and Tom, he knocked on the door. The man opened it a crack, and then he lets us in and shut it quick. By Jackson, when we got a sight of him, we most dropped the trays. And Tom says, why, Jupiter Dunlap, where'd you come from? Well, the man was astonished, of course, and first off, he looked like he didn't know whether to be scared or glad or both or which, but finally settled down on to being glad. Then his color come back some, though at first his face had turned pretty white. So we got to talking together while he ate his breakfast, and he says, But I ain't Jupiter Dunlap. I just as soon tell you who I am, though, if you'll swear to keep mum, for I ain't no Phillips either. Tom says, We'll keep mum, but there ain't no need to tell who you are if you ain't Jupiter Dunlap, because if you ain't him, you're the t'other twin, Jake. You're the spitting image of Jupiter. Well, I am Jake, but looky here. How do you come to know us Dunlaps? Tom told about the adventures we had down there at Uncle Silas's last summer, and when he see that there weren't anything about his folks, or him either for that matter, that we didn't know, he opened out and talked perfectly free and candid. How they talk about me these days, he asked. Why, they don't talk about you at all, Tom says, at least only just a mention once in a time. They think you're long go dead. No, you speaking true, honor bright now? Jake, he jumped up excited. Then I'm saved. I'm saved, sure. I'll go home. They'll hide me and save my life. I've never done you any harm, and I'll never do you any as God is in the heavens. Swear you'll be good to me and help save my life. We talked along, and he got a little handbag and begun to open it and told us to turn our backs. We'd done it, and when he told us to turn around again, he was perfectly different to what he was before. He had on blue goggles and the naturalist-looking long brown whiskers and mustaches you've ever seen. His own mother wouldn't have known it was him. He asked us if he looked like his brother Jupiter now. Tom, he has studied a while, and then he says, Well, of course, me and Huck are going to keep mum them, but if you don't keep mum yourself, there's going to be a little bit of a risk. It ain't much, maybe. Maybe just a little bit. I mean, if you talk, won't people notice that your voice is just like Jupiter's? And mightn't it make them think of the twin they reckon was dead? Maybe he weren't dead at all, but maybe was hit all this time on another name. By George, he says, you're a sharp one. You're perfectly right. I've got to play deep and dumb when there's a neighbor around. If I'd struck for home and forgot that little detail, However, I wasn't striking for home. I was breaking for any place I can get away from these fellows that are after me. Then I was going to put on this disguise and get some different clothes and... He jumped for the outside door and laid his ear against it and listened, pale and kind of panting. Presently, he whispers, Sounded like a cock and gun. Lord, what a life to lead.
Chapter 3, A Diamond Robbery Oh, Lordy, Jake says. They're aboard for sure. I just knowed it. I sort of hoped I got away, but I never believed it. You see, they got spies on me. They got a right to come up and buy drinks at that bar yonder forward, and they take that chance to bribe someone to keep a watch on me. Porters or Boots or somebody. If I was to slip ashore without anybody seeing me, they knowed it inside of an hour. We was in a sweat to find out what a secret was, but Tom said the best way was not to seem too anxious. Then he'd likely drop himself into it with one of his talks. But if we got to asking questions, well, he'd get suspicions and shut up his shell. Pretty soon, sure enough, he was telling. And here's what he says. It was a confidence game. We played it at a jewelry shop in St. Louis. What we was after was a couple of noble big diamonds, big as hazelnuts, which everybody was running to see. We was dressed up fine, and we played it on them in broad daylight. We ordered the diamonds sent to the hotel for us to see if we wanted to buy them. And when we was examining them, we had paste counterfeits already, and them was the things that went back to the shop, and we said the water wasn't quite fine enough for $12,000. $12,000, Tom says. Was they really worth all that money, do you reckon? And you fellas got away with them? Easy as nothing, Jake says. I don't reckon the jewelry people know they've been robbed yet. But it wouldn't be good sense to stay around St. Louis, of course, so we considered where to go. One was for one way and one another, so we throwed up heads or tails on the upper Mississippi one. We done up the diamonds in paper and put our names on it and put in the keep of the hotel clerk and told him not to ever let either of us have it again without the others was on hand to see it done. Then we went downtown, each by his own self, because I reckon maybe we all had the same notion to rob the others. Jake took his time telling us of the distrust and the distaste the thieves had for one another. They all was sneaky and full of trickery. In fact, if it weren't for the crime they took delight in planning and doing, them three thieves might be considered geniuses. We ain't got space here for the long of it, so I'll keep it to the short of it. Jake and a thief named Bud worked worked it to take the diamonds, outsmarting the third thief, Hal, who was foolish enough to be sleeping. Only Hal outsmarted the two outsmarters, cause all the two of them got was sugar. Jake and Bud went back, Hal still sound asleep, but didn't find nothing except what God gave him. It took Jake some time, but he figured it out. Jake, he is a smart one. Hal, he doctored his boots, carving out the heel and hiding the diamonds in it. So what does Jake do? He gets Hal and Bud good and drunk, and doesn't he just walk out of the hotel wearing Hal's boots? So here he was, hiding in this room on account of Hal knew his boots was missing, didn't he? And he knew what was in those boots that was missing. One way or another, it don't matter how, the two thieves was on this very steamer. sleepers. Twice we stopped to fix the machinery and laid a good while, once in the dark, but it wasn't dark enough and Jake was afeard to skip. But the third time we had to fix it there was a better chance. We laid up a country wood yard about 40 miles above Uncle Silas's place, a little, af- a little after one at night, and it was thickening up and going a storm. So Jake, he laid for a chance to slide. We begun to take in wood, 
Pretty soon the rain come a drenching down and the wind blowed hard. Now of course, every boat hand fixed a gunny sack and put it on like a bonnet, the way they do when they're toting wood, and we got one for Jake, and he slipped down after with his handbag and come trampling forward just like the rest and walked offshore with the rest of them. And when we see him pass out of the light of the torch basket and get swallowed up in the dark, we got our breath again and just felt grateful and splendid. But it wasn't for long. Somebody told, I reckon, for an eight to ten minutes, them two pals come tearing forward as tight as they could jump and darted ashore and was gone. We waited plumb till dawn for them to come back and kept hoping they would, but they never did. We was awful sorry and low-spirited. All that hope we had was that Jake had got such a start that they couldn't get on his tracks, and he would get to his brothers and hide there and be safe. He was going to take the river road, and he told us to find out if Brace and Jupiter was home and no strangers there, and then slip out about sundown and tell him. He said he'd wait for us in a little bunch of sycamores right back of Tom's Uncle Silas's tobacco field on River Road, such a lonesome place. Chapter 5 A Tragedy in the Woods we didn't get done tinkering the machinery till late in the afternoon, and so it was getting pretty dim by the time we turned the corner of the sycamores, sweating and panting with that long run, and see the sycamores 30 yards ahead of us, and just as we see a couple of men run into the bunch and heard two or three terrible screams for help. Poor Jake is killed for sure, we says. We were scared through and through and broke for the tobacco field and hid there, trembling so our clothes could hardly stay on. And just as we skipped in there, a couple of men went tearing by and into the bunch they went. And in a second, out jumps four men and took out and off the road as tight as they could go, two chasing two. We laid down, kind of weak and sick, and listened for more sounds, but didn't hear none for a good long while but just our hearts. We was thinking of that awful thing laying yonder in the sycamores and it seemed like being that close to a ghost, it, it gave me cold shudders. The moon came a-swelling up out of the ground now, big, powerful, round and bright, behind like a comb of trees, like a face looking through prison bars, and the black shadows and white places begun to creep around it. It was miserable, quiet, and still, and night breezy, and graveyardy, and scary. All of a sudden, Tom whispers, Look, what's that? Don't, I says. Don't take a person by surprise that way. I'm most ready to die anyway without you doing that. Look, he says. It's something coming out of the sycamores. It's terrible tall. Oh, Lordy, Lordy, let's keep still. It's coming this way. Tom, he was so excited he could hardly get enough breath to whisper. I had to look. I couldn't help it. So now we was both on our knees with our chin on a fence rail and gazing, yes, and gasping too. It was coming down the road, coming in the shadow of the trees, and you couldn't see it good, not till it was pretty close to us. Then it stepped right into a bright splotch of moonlight, and we sunk right down into our tracks. It was Jake Dunlap's ghost. That's what we said to ourselves. Well, we couldn't stir for a minute or two, and then it was gone. We talked about it in low voices. Tom says, they're mostly dim and smoky, or like they're made out of fog, but this one wasn't. Noah says, I seen the goggle and the whiskers perfectly plain, but it had its bag along, I noticed that. How 
come here, be a ghost bag, Tom. Shoo, I wouldn't be as ignorant as that if I was you, Huck Finn. Whatever a ghost has, it turns to ghost stuff. They gotta have their things too, like everybody else. You see yourself, that it has its clothes was turned to ghost stuff. Well, then, what's to hinder its bag from turning too? Of course it done it. Well, that was reasonable. I couldn't find no fault with it. Bill Withers and his brother Jack come along by, talking, and Jack says, What do you reckon he was toting? I don't know, but it was pretty heavy, Bill says. Stealing corn from old Parson Silas, I judged. So did I, Jack says, and so I allowed I wouldn't let him see him. Then they both left and went out on a hearing. It showed how unpopular old Uncle Silas had gotten to be now. They wouldn't have let nobody steal anybody else's corn and never done anything to him. We heard some more voices mumbling along towards us and getting louder, and sometimes a cackle of a laugh. It was Lambibi and Jim Lane. Jim Lane says, Who? Jupiter Dunlap? Oh, I don't know. I reckon so. I seen him spading up some ground long about an hour ago, just before sundown. Him and the parson. Said he guessed he wouldn't go tonight, but we could have his dog if we wanted him. Too tired, I reckon, Lambibi says back. Yes, he worked so hard. They cackled at that and went on by. Tom said we better jump out and tag along after them because they was going our way and it wouldn't be comfortable to run across that ghost all by herself. So we done it and we got home all right. Chapter 6 Plans to Secure the Diamonds Was that ghost barefooted? kind of questions you asked Tom Sawyer. No, it wasn't. It had its boots on. I seen him plain. What of it? Means that thieves didn't get the diamonds, Tom says. Didn't the britches and goggles and whiskers and handbag and every blessed thing turn to ghost stuff? Everything it had on it turned, didn't it? It shows that the reason its boots was because it had the boots on when it died. And if that ain't proof that them blatherskates didn't get the boots, I'd like to know what you'd call proof. Them thieves got chased away by those two men before they could pull the boots off the courts. After the inquest, I reckon two dollars will buy us them boots. My land, Tom, we'll get the diamonds. You betcha, Huck. Someday there's going to be a big reward for them. A thousand dollars, sure. That's our money. Now we'll trot in and see the folks, and mind you, we don't know anything about any murder or any diamonds or any thieves, so don't you forget that. I had to sigh a little over the way he had it fixed. I had to sold them diamonds, yes sir, for $12,000, but I didn't say anything. It wouldn't have done any good. So what are we going to tell your Aunt Sally has made us so long getting down here from the village, Tom? Oh, I'll leave that to you, he says. I reckon you'll explain it somehow. We struck across the big yard, noticing this, that, and the other thing that was so familiar, and we were so glad to see it again. And when we got to the roofed big passage betwixt the double log house and the kitchen part, there was everything hanging on the wall just as it used to be, even to Uncle Silas's old faded green blaze work gown with the hood on it, and raggedy white patch between the shoulder blades that always looked like someone just hit him with a snowball. And then we lifted the latch and walked in. Aunt Sally, she just was a ripping and a tearing around, and the children was huddled in one corner, and the old man, well, he was huddled in the other, and praying for help in time of need. 
she jumped for us with tears of joy running down her face and then she gave us a whacking box on the ear and then hugged us and kissed us and then she boxed us again and just couldn't seem to get enough of it she was so glad to see us and then she finally says where have you been a loafing to you good-for-nothing trash I've been worried about you I didn't know what to do your traps have been here forever so long and I had supper cooked fresh about four times so as to have it hot and good when you come till at last my patience just plumb wore out and I declare I I I could skin you alive you must be starving poor things sit down sit down everybody don't lose no more time well, it was good to be there again, behind all that noble carn pone and spare ribs and everything you could ever want in this world. When our plates was all loaded and we got to go and she asked me, and I says, well, me and Tom allowed that we could come along on foot and take a smell of the woods and we'd run around along Lem Beebe and Jim Lane and they asked us to go with them up Blackberry tonight and said how they can borrow Jupiter Dunlap's dog because he had told them just that minute Where'd they see him, the old man says. And when I looked up to see how he come to take an interest in things like that, his eyes was just burning into me, he was that eager. Kind of surprised me, kind of threw me off. But I pulled myself together again and it says, it was up when he was spading up some of that ground along with you, towards sundown or along there. He only said, um, in a kind of disappointed way and didn't take no more interest. And so I went on, I says, well then, I was, as I was saying, that'll do, you needn't go no further. That was Aunt Sally. She was born right into me with her eyes, very indignant. Huck Finn, she says, how them men come to talk about going to Black Baron in September in this region? And how they come to strike that idiot idea of going to Black Baron in the night? Well, mm, our, they, they told us they had a lantern in. Oh, do shut up. Look, looky here. What was they going to do with the dog? Hunt blackberries with it? She turned them boring eyes to Tom. Now, Tom Sawyer, what kind of lie are you affixing your mouth to contribute to this mess of rubbish? Speak out, and I'll warn you before you begin that I don't believe a word of it. You and Huck's been up to something you had no business being up to. I know that perfectly well. I know both of you. Now, you explain that dog, then blackberries, and the lantern, and all the rest of that rot. Mind you, you talk straight as a string. Do you hear? Well, Tom, he looked considerable hurt, and he says, very dignified. It's a pity if Huck is to be talked to that way, just for making a little mistake that anybody could make. What mistake has he made, she asked. Why, only the mistake of saying blackberries, when of course he meant strawberries. Well, she busted him in him on them here and there and just piled into him and snowed him under. She was so mad she couldn't get the words out fast enough and she gushed them all out at once in one everlasting freshet. That was what Tom Sawyer was after. He allowed to get her worked up and get her started, then leave her alone and let her burn herself out. Then she'd be so aggravated with the subject she wouldn't say another word about it nor let anybody else. Well, it happened just so. When she was tuckered out and had to hold up, she says, I don't want to hear another word out of you. So we was perfectly safe then and didn't have no more trouble about that delay. Tom done it elegant. Chapter 7, A Night's Vigil By and by, 
a spell after supper, come Brace Dunlap's man saying Brace was getting tired of waiting supper on Jupiter, and would Uncle Silas please send him where he was? I never seen Uncle Silas speak up so sharp and fractious before. He says, am I his brother's keeper? And then he kind of wilted together and looked like he wished he hadn't spoken so, and then he says very gentle, but you needn't say that, Billy. I took sudden and irritable and I ain't very well these days and not hardly responsible. Tell him he ain't here. My Aunt Sally, she was busy getting the children ready for bed, so by and by it got dull and tedious, and me and Tom took a turn in the moonlight and fetched up in the watermelon patch, and we ate one and had a good deal of talk. And Tom said he'd bet the quarreling was all Jupiter's fault, and he was going to be on hand the first chance he got and see, and if it was so, he was going to do his level best to get Uncle Silas to turn him out. And so we talked and smoked and stuffed watermelons much as two hours, and then it was pretty late, and when we got back to the house, it was quiet and dark. Everyone had gone to bed. Tom, he's always seeing everything, and now he sees that the old green blaze work gown was gone, and he said it wasn't gone when we went out, so he allowed it was curious, and then we went up to bed. We found we couldn't sleep. We sat up a long time and smoked and talked in low voice and felt pretty dull and downhearted. We talked the murder and the ghost over and over again and got so creepy and crawly we couldn't get any sleep, no how, no way. By and by, when it was away late in the night and all the sounds was late sounds and silent, Tom nudged me and he whispers to me to look and I done it and there was a man poking around in the yard like he didn't know just what he was wanting to do. It was pretty dim and we couldn't see him good. Then he started for the stile and as he went over the moon came out strong and he had the long-handed shovel over his shoulder and we see the white patch on the old work gown. So Tom says, Uncle Silas, he's a walking in his sleep. I wish we was allowed to follow him and see where he was going to. There he's turned down by the tobacco field. Out of sight now. It's a dreadful pity he can't rest no better. We waited a long time, but he didn't come back anymore. Or if he did, he'd come around the other way. So at last we was tuckered out and went to sleep and had nightmares, a million of them. But before dawn we was awake again because meantime a storm had come up and been a raging. And the thundering and lightning was awful and the wind was a thrashing the trees around and the rain was driving down in slanting sheets and the gullies was running rivers. Tom says, looky here, Huck, I'll tell you one thing that's mighty curious. Up to the time we went out last night, the family hadn't heard about Jake Dunlap being murdered. Now the men that chased Hal and Butterway would spread that thing around in a half hour, and every neighbor that heard would have shined it out and fly around from one farm to the other to be the first to tell the news. Land, they don't have such big things here twice in 30 years. Huck, it's mighty strange, and I don't understand it. We was out and gone the minute the rain stopped. It was just broad day then. We loafed along the road and now and then met a person and stopped and said howdy and told them when we come and how we left the folks at home and how long we was going to stay and all that. And none of them said a word about that thing, which was just astonishing and no mistake. Tom said he believed if we went to the sycamores, we'd find that body laying there solitary and alone and not a soul around. He said he believed the men chased the thieves so far in the woods that the thieves probably seen a good chance and turned on them at last. And maybe they all killed each other, so there ain't anybody left to tell. First we knowed, gabbling all along, we was right at the sycamores. The cold chills trickled down my back and I couldn't budge another step. 
for all times persuading, but he couldn't hold in. He got to see if the boots was safe on the body yet. So he crope in, and the next minute he come out again with his eyes bulging. He was so excited. He says, Huck, it's gone. Well, I was astonished, and I says, Tom, you don't mean it. It's gone, sure. There ain't a sign of it. The crowd has trampled some, but if there was any blood, it's blood, it's all washed away by the storm, for it's all puddles and slush in there. At last I give in and went and looked for myself, and it was just as Tom said. There weren't a sign of a corpse. Turn it, I said. The diamonds is gone. Don't you reckon the thief slunk back and lugged him off, Tom? Looks like it. It just does. No, where'd they hide him, do you reckon? I don't know, I says, disgusted, and what's more, I don't care. They got the boots, and that's all I cared about. We'll lay around these woods a long time before I hunt them up. Tom didn't feel no more interest in him, neither, only curiosity to know what come of them. But he said we'd lay low and keep dark, and it wouldn't be long till the dogs or somebody came and rousted him out. We went back home to breakfast, ever so bothered and put out and disappointed and swindled. I weren't ever so down on a corpse before. Chapter 8, Talking with the Ghost Me and Tom struck out for the woods mighty solemn and saying how different it was now to last summer when we was here and everything was so peaceful and happy and everybody thought so much of Uncle Silas and he was so cheerful and simple-hearted and puddin-headed and good and now look at him. If he ain't lost his mind, he wasn't much short of it. That was what we allowed. There it is, I says. We jumped back behind a shivering bush, and Tom says, Shh, don't make a noise. It was setting on the log right on the edge of the little prairie, thinking. I tried to get Tom to come away, but he wouldn't, and I wasn't budging him myself. He said we might never get a chance to see one, and he was going to look at his fill if this one, if he died for it. So I looked too, though it gave me the fantods to do it. Tom, he had to talk, but he talked low. He says, Poor Jakey, it's got all of its things on, just like he said he would. Now you see what he wasn't certain about? It's his hair. It's not, it's not long now the way it was. He's got it cropped close to his head, the way he said he would. Huck, I never seen anything more natural looking than what it does. Nor I neither, I says. I'd recognize it anywheres. So would I, he says. Looks perfectly solid and genuine, just the way it done before it died. So we kept gazing. Pretty soon Tom says, Huck, there's something mighty curious about one, don't you? It oughtn't be out in the daytime. Well, that's so, Tom. I never thought I'd like it before. No, sir, he says. They don't ever come out, only at night. And then not till after twelve. There's something wrong about this one. Now you mark my words. I don't believe it's got any right being around in daytime. But don't it look natural? Jake was going to play deep and dumb here so the neighbors wouldn't know his voice. Look, Huck, it's scratching its head, don't you see? Well, what of it, I says. Why this? What's the sense of scratching its head? There ain't anything to itch. It's made out of fog or something like that, and it can't itch. Fog can't itch, any fool knows that. Well, then, I says, if it don't itch and it can't itch, what in the nation is it doing scratching for? Ain't it just habit, do you reckon? No, sir, I don't, he says. I ain't a bit satisfied about the way this one acts. I got a blame good notion it's a bogus one. I have as sure as I'm sitting here. Because if it... Huck! Well, now 
what's the matter, I says. You can't see the bushes through it. Why, Tom, so it's sure. It's as solid as a cow. I sort of begin to think, Huck, it's biting up a chaw tobacco. By George, they don't chaw. They ain't got nothing to chaw with. Huck, that ain't a ghost at all. It's Jake Dunlap his own self. Oh, your granny, I says. Huck Finn, did we find any corpse in the sycamores? No. Why, Tom, you know we heard. Yes, we heard. We heard a howl or two. Does that prove anybody was killed? Of course it don't. And we seen four men run, and then this one comes walking out, and we took it for a ghost. No more ghost than you are. It was Jake Dunlap his own self, and it's Jake Dunlap now. He's been and got his hair cropped the way he said he would, and he's playing himself for a stranger, just the same as he said he would. Ghost. Hmm. He's as sound as a nut. And then I see it all, and we had took too much for granted. I was powerful glad he didn't get killed, and so was Tom, but we wondered which he would like best, for us to never load, let on to know him, or how. Tom reckoned the best way would be to go and ask him. So he started, but I stayed behind a little because I didn't know it might be a ghost after all. When Tom got to where he was, he says, Me and Huck's mighty glad to see you again, and you needn't be afraid we'll tell. If you think it'd be safer for you if we don't let on to know when we run across you, say the word and you can depend on us, and we would rather cut our hands off than get you in the least bit of danger. Well, first off, Jake looked surprised to see us and not very glad either. But as time went on, he looked pleasanter and pleasanter. And when he was done, he smiled and nodded his head several times and made signs with his hand and said, Goo, 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 the way deep and dummies does. And then we see some of Steve Nickerson's people coming that lived the other side of the prairie. So Tom says, you do it elegant. I never seen anybody do it better. You're right playing on us too. Play it on us the same as the others. It'll keep you in practice and prevent you making blunders. We'll keep away from you and let on we don't know you, but anytime we can be a help, you just let us know. Chapter 9. The Finding of Jupiter Dunlap Well, two or three days went along and everybody got to getting uneasy about Jupiter Dunlap. Everybody was asking everybody if they had any idea what had become of them. No, they hadn't, they said, and they shook their heads and said there was something powerful strange about it. Another and another day went by, and then there was a report that got around that perhaps he was murdered. You bet that made a big stir. Everybody's tongue was clacking away after that. Saturday, two or three gangs turned out and hunted the woods to see if they could run across his remainders. Me and Tom helped, and it was noble good times and exciting. Tom, he was so brimful of it, he couldn't eat nor sleep nor rest. He said if we could find that corpse, we would be celebrated and more talked about than if we got drowned. The others got tired and gived up, but not Tom Sawyer. That weren't his style. Saturday night, he didn't sleep any. Hardly, trying to think up a plan, and towards daylight in the morning, he struck it. He snaked me out of bed and was all excited, and he says, Quick, Huck, snatch your clothes. I've got it. Bloodhound. In two minutes, we was tearing up River Road in the dark toward the village. Old Jeff Hooker had a bloodhound, and Tom was going to borrow one. It was a lovely dog. There ain't any dog that's got a lovelier disposition than a bloodhound, and this one noticed and liked us, and he capered and raced around ever so friendly and was powerful glad to be free and had a holiday. 
but Tom was so cut up he couldn't take any interest in him. He said he wished he'd stop and thought a minute before he ever started on a fool errand. He said old Jeff Hooker would tell everybody and we'd never hear the last of it. So we loafed along home down the back lanes, feeling pretty glum and not talking. When we was passing the far corner of our tobacco field, we heard the dog set up a howl in there, and we went to the place where he was scratching the ground with all of his might, and every now and then canting up his head sideways and fetching another howl. It was a long square, the shape of a grave. The rain had made it sink down and show the shape. The minute we come and stood there, we looked from one to another and never said a word. When the dog had dug down only a few inches, he grabbed something and pulled it up. It was an arm and a sleeve. Tom kind of gasped out and he says, come away, Huck, it's found. I just felt awful. We struck for the road and we fetched the first men we come along. We got a spade at the crib and dug out the body and you never seen such excitement. You couldn't make anything out of the face, but you didn't need to. Everybody says, poor Jupiter, it's as close to the last rag. Some rushed off to spread the news and to tell the justice of the peace and have an inquest, and me and Tom lit out for the house. Tom was all afire and most out of breath when we come tearing in where Uncle Silas and Aunt Sally and Benny was. Tom sug out. Me and Huck found Jupiter Dunlap's course all by ourselves with the bloodhound, and everybody else had quit hunting and given it up, and if it ain't been for us, it never would have been found, and he was murdered too, and they done it with a club or something like that, and I'm going to start in and find the murderer next. I bet I'll do it. Well, Aunt Sally and Benny sprung up pale and astonished, but Uncle Silas fell right forward out of his chair onto the floor and groans out, Oh my God, you found him now? Chapter 10, The Arrest of Uncle Silas. Them awful words froze us solid. We couldn't move hand or foot for as much as half a minute. Then we kind of come to and lifted the old man up and got him into his chair and Benny petted him and kissed him and tried to comfort him and poor Aunt Sally, she done the same. But poor things, they was so broke up and scared and knocked right out of their minds that they didn't hardly know what it was about. With Tom, it was awful. It most petrified him to think he maybe got his uncle into 1,000 times more trouble than ever. And maybe it wouldn't have ever happened if he ain't been so ambitious to get celebrated and let the corpse alone the way the others done. But pretty soon he come out of it again and, uncle, and says, Uncle Silas, don't you say another word like that. It's dangerous and there ain't no shade of truth to it. No, I done it. Poor Jupiter, I done it. Then he went on and told us about it and said it happened the day me and Tom come along sundown. He said Jupiter pestered him and aggravated him till he was just so mad he sort of lost his mind and grabbed up a stick and hit him over the head with all of his might and Jupiter dropped in his tracks. Then he was scared and sorry and got down on his knees and lifted his head up and begged to see and speak and say he wasn't dead and for long he come to and when he seen who it was holding his head he jumped up like he was most scared to death and cleared the fence and tore to the woods and was gone so he hoped he wasn't hurt bad but laws uncle silas says it was just fear that given that last brush of strength of course it soon played out and he laid down in the bush and there wasn't anybody there to help him and and he died but Tom says, no, you ain't going to be found out. 
You didn't kill him. One lick wouldn't kill him. Somebody else done it and somebody buried him. Now who? He shut off sudden and I know the reason. It gave me cold shudders when he said them words because right away I remembered us seeing Uncle Silas prowling around with the long-handled shovel in the middle of the night. Then comes a heavy pounding at the door. By the authority of the state of Arkansas, I arrest you for the murder of Jupiter Dunlap, shouts the sheriff. Okay, the next chapter. <laughs> Jack scared the dogs. I said the next chapter. Relax. <laughs> the next chapter. Chapter 11. The Evidence Mounts. So at last the trial come on towards the middle of October and we was all in the court. The place was jammed of course. Poor old Uncle Silas, he looked more like a dead person than a live one. His eyes was so hollow and he looked so thin and so mournful. Benny she sat on one side of him and Aunt Sally on the other and they had veils on and was full of trouble. But Tom he sat by our lawyer and he had his finger in everywheres of course. The lawyer let him and the judge let him. He most took the business out of the lawyer's hand sometimes, which was well enough because that was only a mud turtle of a back settlement lawyer and didn't know enough when to come in when it rains, as the saying is. They swore in the jury, and then the lawyer for the prostitution got up and began. He made a terrible speech against the old man. The way he told it about the murderer kind of knocked us all stupid. It was so different from the old I, man's tale. I, I have to interrupt you there. I... So I know Mark Twain happened to say some words instead of other words. Did you say he stood up in front of the prostitution? The lawyer for the prostitution got up and begun. <laughs> I don't... All right. Well, pretty sure prosecution is the right word there. But you know what? We'll stick with prostitution. <laughs> That's the way Huck calls it throughout the entire rest of the story. It is the prostitution. Well, they swore on the jury, and then the lawyer for the prostitution got up and begun. He made a terrible speech against the old man. The way he told the tale about the murder knocked us all stupid. It was so different from the old man's tale. He said he was going to prove that Uncle Silas was seen to kill Jupiter Dunlap by two good witnesses and done it deliberate. And he said he was going to kill him with the very minute he hit him with the club. And they seen him hide Jupiter in the bushes. And they seen that Jupiter was stone dead and said Uncle Silas come later and lugged Jupiter out to the tobacco field and the two men seen him do it and said Uncle Silas turned out away in the night and buried Jupiter and a man had seen him at it. And when that lawyer was done telling the jury what he was going to prove, he sat down and begun his work on his witnesses. First, he called a lot of them to show that there was bad blood betwixt Uncle Silas and the diseased. They told how they had heard Uncle Silas... The deceased? The diseased? All the right. diseased. All right, all right. <laughs> 
first he called out a lot of them to show that there was bad blood betwixt Uncle Silas and the diseased. They told him how he had heard Uncle Silas threaten the diseased one time and another and how it got worse and worse and everybody was talking about it and how disease got afraid for his life and told one or two or three of them that he was certain Uncle Silas would up and kill him sometime or another. Well, Tom and our lawyer asked them some questions, but it weren't no use. They stuck to what they said. Next, they called up Lem Beebe, and he took the stand. It come to mind then how Lem and Jim Lane had come along talking that time about borrowing a dog or something from Jupiter Dunlap, and that brought up blackberries and the lantern, and what that brought up Bill and Jack Withers and how they passed by, talking about a man stealing Uncle Silas's corn, and that fetched up our old ghost that come along at the same time and scared us so, and he was here too, a privileged character on account of his being deep and dumb and a stranger. They had fixed him a chair inside the railing where he could cross his legs and be comfortable, whilst all the other people was all jammed in so they could hardly breathe. So it all come back to me just the way it was that day, and it made me mournful to think about how pleasant it was up to then and how miserable ever since. Then Beebe, sworn, said, I was a-coming along that day, 2nd of September, and Jim Lane was with me, and it was towards sundown, and we heard a loud talk, like quarreling, and we was very close, only the hazel bushes between, that's along the fence, and we heard a voice say, I told you more than once I'd kill you, and knowed all along it was this prisoner's voice, and then we see a club come up above the bushes and then down out of sight again, and heard a smash and thump, and then a groan or two, and then we crept soft to where we could see, and there lay Jupiter Dunlap dead, and this prisoner was standing over him with the club, and the next he hauled the dead man into a clump of bushes and hit him, and then we stooped low to be out of sight and got away. I looked at Tom and I got cold shivers. Why, he was in the brownest study you'd ever see, miles and miles away. He weren't hearing a word Lem Beebe was saying, and when he got through he was still in that brown study just the same. Our lawyer joggled him, and then he looked startled and says, Take the witness if you want it. Leave me alone. I want to think. Well, that beat me. I couldn't understand it. So the mud turtle, he tackled the witness, but it didn't amount to nothing. He made a mess of it. Then they called up Jim Lane, and he told the very same story again. Exact. Tom never listened to this one at all, but he sat there thinking and thinking miles and miles away. So the mud turtle went in alone again and come out just as flat as he'd done before. The lawyer for the prostitution looked very comfortable, and the judge looked disgusted. You see, Tom was just the same as a regular lawyer, nearly, because it was Arkansas law for a prisoner to choose anybody he wanted to help his lawyer. And Tom had had Uncle Silas shove him into the case, and now he was botching it, and you could see the judge didn't like it much. The lawyer for the prostitution called Bill Withers. Bill Withers sworn said, I was coming along about sundown, Saturday, September 2nd, by the prisoner's field, and my brother Jack was with me, and we seen a man toting off something heavy on his back, and allowed it was a man stealing corn. We couldn't see distinct. Next we made out it was one man carrying another, and the way it hung, so kind of limp, we judged that it was somebody that was drunk. And by the way the man's walk, we could see it was Parson Silas, and we judged he had found Sam Cooper drunk in the road, which he was always trying to reform him, and he was toting him out of danger. Tom, he went on thinking and never took notice. So our liar took the witness and then the best he could, and it was plenty poor enough. 
Then Jack Withers, he comes on the stand and he told the same tale, just like Bill done. Brace Dunlap, sworn in, said, I was in considerable trouble a long time about my poor brother, but I reckon things weren't so bad as he made out, and I couldn't make myself believe anybody would have the heart to hurt that poor less, that poor harmless creature like that. By jings, I was sure I'd see Tom get a kind of faint little starter, but then I was disappointed again. And you know, Brace says, I couldn't think a preacher would hurt him. It weren't natural to think such a unlikely thing. I never paid much attention, and now I shan't ever, ever forgive myself. For if I had done something different, my poor brother would be with me this day, not laying yonder murdered and him so harmless. Well, he kind of broke down there and choked up and waited to get his voice, and people all around said the most pitiful things, and women cried, and it was very still in there and solemn, and old Uncle Silas, poor thing, he gave out a right moan so everybody heard him. Then Brace, he went on. Saturday, September 2nd, he didn't come home to supper. Away late in that awful Saturday night when I was wandering about this prisoner's place, grieving and troubled, I was down by the corner of tobacco field and I heard the sound of digging in the gritty soil. I cropped nearer and peeped through the vines that hung on the rail fence and seen this prisoner shoveling, shoveling with the long-handed shovel, heaving earth into a big hole that was mostly filled up. His back was to me, but it was bright moonlight, and I knowed him by the old green blaze work, work gown with the splattery white patch in the middle of the back that somebody had hit him with the snowball, and he was burying the man he murdered. Slumped down in his chair and crying and a stabbing, and most everybody in the house burst out wailing and crying and saying, Oh, it's awful, awful, horrible! And there was the most tremendous excitement, and you could hear yourself think, right in the middle of it, jumps up old Uncle Silas, white as a sheet, and he sings out, It's true, every word, I murdered him in cold blood. By Jackson, it petrified them. People rose up wild all over the house, straining and staring for a better look at him. And the judge was hammering his mallet, and the sheriff was yelling, Order! Order in the court! Order! Tom Sawyer never looked once at him, never once. He just sat there gazing with his eyes something else. I couldn't tell what. And so the old man raged right along, pouring his words out like a steam of fire. I killed him. I'm guilty. I never had the notion in my life to hurt him or harm him, spite all them lies and threatened him. Till the very minute I raised the club, then my heart went cold. Then the pity all went out and I struck to kill. In that one moment, all my wrongs came into my mind. All the insults that that man and his scoundrel brother there had laid upon me and how they laid together to ruin me with the people and take away my good name and drive me to some deed that would destroy me and my family that hadn't ever done them no harm so help me God and they had done it in a mean revenge for why because my pure innocent girl here at my side wouldn't marry that rich insolent arrogant coward Brace Dunlap who's been sniveling here over the brother he never cared a brass farthing for I see Tom give a jump, this time glad to dead certainty that I saw it. And then in a moment I told you about, I forgot my God, and I remembered only my heart's bitterness. God forgive me, I struck to kill. In one second I was miserably sorry, oh, filled with remorse. But I thought of my poor family, and I must hide what I'd done for their sakes. I hid the corpse in the bushes, and presently I carried it to the tobacco field. And there, deep in the night, I went with my shovel and buried it where up jumps Tom and shouts, 
Now I've got it. He waves his hand, oh, ever so fine and starchy, towards the old man and says, Set down. A murder was done, but you never had no hand in it. Well, now here's where we're going to do the pause thing so y'all can see if one penny, yours, one penny as good as Tom Sawyer Esquire in figuring out who killed Jupiter Dunlap. Because if it ain't been made clear by now, I'm telling you, it weren't Uncle Silas. I, so we've done this before. <laughs> so we did this podcast before and I, we lost it. We don't know where it is. It's gone. I don't remember what happened. This story. See, the podcast went to the same place socks go in the dryer. I don't know what's happening. I got to be I've heard this multiple times now. And you'd think, oh, good old Jack would know what, what to do, what happens. No, I haven't the slightest bit clue. Okay, Jupiter Dunlap has been found dead in Uncle Silas's tobacco field. Well, yeah, but didn't we also hear earlier that Uncle Silas lost his jacket? Didn't someone literally say that? Wasn't it literally written into the book? Tom said that. Well, then, you'd think good old Tommy Boy would bring that up, wouldn't he? Oh, he's about to. <laughs> so, no, no, no. We're, we're ignoring this, too. No, we're not ignoring this. So, so, Mark Twain wrote this really good. So, you have to remember what Tom and Huck saw. Then you have to remember what those men testified to. Because there's some lying going on. Well, yeah, I'm not 90% sure. You notice none of them actually say, oh, I saw him. It's all, oh, I saw him in the green sweatshirt. And the way he walked, I looked like him. So it must have been him. Mm-hmm. But Obviously, do you it wasn't know him. who killed Jupiter Dunlap? I'm assuming it was the one person who we were introduced, turned out he was a bad guy, and boom, he's gone. Jake? Yeah. You think Jake did it? Okay. Mark that one down. Well, what the heck happened to Jake? What's the point of his existence if he didn't do nothing in this? <laughs> no, you tell me that. I, I can't tell you that without giving the end away. Who cares what the end is? Listen, anyone who's watching this is like, oh, Jack, you just spoiled it. No, I didn't. <laughs> Are we just going to ignore the fact that he was introduced and we just uh, nothing? He's gone. <laughs> I bet I bet he just never comes back in the rest of the story. He's just done for. That was it. He's, it's actually uh, just a setup for the next story. We just have to know that it happened so that when he writes his next little story, oh yeah, I remember Jakey. That is not the case. Well, then my point proved exactly. I think it was. I don't know if it was Jake, but I bet he has something to do with it. Do you want? Do you want some clues? No. No, you're worse than me with this. What? Well, if I was in your position, I would have already accidentally given away who it was. <laughs> Okay, think of, so think about it. No, no, things. no. We're going to do this the good old-fashioned way. <laughs> None of this bullcrap. No, no, no cheating. I know how fun it is to give hints. No but then hints. you're always disappointed once I get it right. And you're like, oh, now it's over. He's not stupid. Actually, you're pretty good at this. I think you mostly guessed who well, has actually Well, it definitely has nothing to do with the fact that I've heard this before. <laughs> You've heard it before, but you can't remember who the killer is? <laughs> I didn't even remember which podcast it was when I realized we lost this episode. <laughs> This was one of my favorite ones. I love the way um, Mark Twain wrote this. It's it was so my much least favorite read. one. It took an hour and a half, 40 minutes to do. Yeah. Uh, well, you, yeah. shall we get on with the uh, summation here? <sighs> Je pense, I suppose. All right. Let's go. Mm. 
Chapter 12. Tom discovers the murderers. Plural, murderers. Tom, he stood there and waited a second or two. That was for to work up an effect, as he calls it. Then, with the judge's permission, he started in just as calm as ever, and he says, For about two weeks now, there's been a little bill sticking on the front of this courthouse, offering $2,000 reward for a couple of big diamonds stolen at St. Louis. Them diamonds is worth $12,000, but never mind about that till I get to it. Now about this murder, I will tell you all about what happened, who done it, every detail. You could see everybody nestle now and begin to listen for all they was worth. This man here, Brace Dunlap, that's been sniveling so about his dead brother that you know he never cared a straw for, wanted to marry that young girl there, and she wouldn't have him. So he told Uncle Silas he would make him sorry. Uncle Silas knowed how powerful he was and how little chance he had against such a man, and he was scared and worried and done everything he could to think of soothing him over. Even took his no-account brother Jupiter on the farm to give him wages and stinted his own family to pay them. And Jupiter done everything his brother could contrive to insult Uncle Silas, and fret him and worry him, and drive Uncle Silas into doing him harm, so as to injure Uncle Silas with the people. And he done it. Everybody turned against him and said the meanest kind of things about him and gradually broke his heart. Yes, and he was so worried and distressed that he often aren't hardly in his right mind. Well, then on that Saturday that we've all heard so much trouble about, two of these witnesses here, Lem Beebe and Jim Lane, come along where Uncle Silas and Jupiter Dunlap was at work. That much of what they said is true. The rest is lies. They didn't hear Uncle Silas say that he'd killed Jupiter. They didn't hear no blows struck. They didn't see no dead man, and they didn't see Uncle Silas hide anything in the bushes. Look at them now, how they sat there, wishing they ain't been so handy with their tongues. Anyway, they'll wish it before I get done. That same evening, Bill and Jack Withers did see one man lugging another off. That much of what they said is true. The rest is lies. First off, they thought it was a man stealing Uncle Silas's corn. You notice it takes them, makes them look silly now to find out somebody overheard what they said. But that's because they found out by and by who it was doing the lugging, and they know best why they swore their hearts here and they took it for Uncle Silas's by the gate, which it wasn't, and they knowed it when they swore to that lie. A man out in the moonlight did see a murdered person put in the ground in the tobacco field, but it wasn't Uncle Silas that done the burying. He was in his bed at that very time. Now then, before I go on, I want to ask you if you've ever noticed this, that people, when they're thinking deep or when they're worried, are always doing something with their hands and they don't know it. You don't know what it is in their hands doing. Some stroke their chins and some stroke their noses. Some stroke up under their chins. Some twirl a chain and some fumble a button. There's that some that draws a figure, a letter with their figure on their cheek or under their chin or under their lip. That's my way. When I'm restless or worried or thinking hard, I draw a capital V on my cheek or on my upper lip or under my chin. But it's never anything but capital V's, and half the time I don't notice it, and I don't know I'm doing it. That was odd. That is just what I do when I make a, an O. And I could see people nodding one another, meaning they do the same. So, that's so. Now then, Tom says, I'll go on. That same Saturday, no, it was the night before, 
There was a steamboat lying at Flagger's Landing 40, 40 miles above here, and it was raining and storming like the nation. And there was a thief aboard, and he had them two big diamond that's advertised there on the courthouse door, and he slipped ashore with his handbag and struck out into the dark and the storm, and he was a-hoping he could get to this town all right and be safe. But he had two pals aboard the boat hiding, and he knowed that they was going to kill him the first chance they got and take the diamonds, because he stole them. And when this fellow got a hold of him and skipped. Well, he ain't been gone more than ten minutes before his pals find out and they jump ashore and lit out after him. Probably they burned matches and found his tracks. Anyway, they dogged him all Saturday and kept out of his sights. And towards sundown, he come down to a bunch of sycamores down by Uncle Silas's field. And he went in there to get his disguise out of his bag and put it on before he showed himself in town here. And mind you, he'd done that just a little after the time that Uncle Silas was hitting Jupiter Dunlap over the head with the club, for he did hit him. But the minute the pals see the thief slide into the bunch of sycamores, they jump out of the bushes and slid in after him. They fell on him and they clubbed him to death. Yes, for all he screamed and howled so, they never had no mercy on him, but they clubbed him to death. And two men that was running along the road heard him yelling that way, and they made a rush into the sycamore bush. And that was when they was bound for anyway. And when they saw the pals lit out, and the two men chasing after him as tight as they could go, but only a minute or two, then these two men slipped back into the very quiet sycamores. Then why did they do that? Well, I'm going to tell you. They found where the thief had gotten his disguise out of the carpenter sack and put it on. So one of them strips and put on that disguise. Tom waited here for a little more effect. Then he says very deliberate, and that man, that dead man's disguise was Jupiter Dunlap. Yes, it was Jupiter. Then they pulled off the dead man's boots and put it on Jupiter's old ragged shoes on the corpse and put Jupiter's, the corpse's boots on Jupiter Dunlap. Then Jupiter Dunlap stayed where he was, and the other man lugged the dead body off in twilight. And after midnight, he went to Uncle Silas's house, took the old green work robe off the peg where it always hangs in the passage betwixt the house and the kitchen, and put it on, and stole a long-handled shovel and went up and down the tobacco field and buried the murdered man. Tom stopped then and stood half a minute then. And who do you reckon the murdered man was? Hold on, I'm confused. All right, it's not because I'm dumb. It's because that was a lot of words. So, guy died. The, the thief died, right? The thief died. What about Jupiter? They put the dead man's boots on Jupiter Dunlap and Jupiter Dunlap's boots on the dead man. And they switched uh, the clothes. So, was Jupiter unconscious? No, Jupiter's awake. Jupiter's doing the switching of the clothes. So Jupiter's one of the thieves? No. <laughs> Mom, where did Jupiter come from? He, he okay, okay, we're going to have to abridge here a little bit. He and his brother Brace were the two that chief, uh, that chased the thieves off. Then they went back to the dead man that the thieves killed, and they took the dead man's clothes. Yeah, because we're going to pretend like we don't know who the dead man is. I was just about to reveal when you couldn't take it anymore. Well, and do you reckon the murdered man was? It was Jake Dunlap, the long-lost burglar. And the man that buried him, that was Brace Dunlap, his brother. 
And who do you reckon is mowing the moaning idiot here all these weeks pretending to be a deaf and dumb stranger? It's Jupiter Dunlap. Does that make sense, Jack? So, so Jupiter, so he was killed by the two thieves. So Jake, no, Jake was, killed was killed by the thieves. The two thieves. Jupiter found him with Brasario or whatever his name is. Brace. His brother Brace. The Bracero program. Yes. Um, and they said, okay, let's switch your clothing because we're going to... They, they just didn't care about the fact, oh, look, my long lost dead brother. Well, they, he got clubbed to death and they described the face. They said you couldn't tell who it was by the face. They identified the corpse by the clothes. So they didn't know that it was their brother Jake. So why in the heck did they decide, you know what's a good idea? Let's pretend like this guy's dead. Let's read on. <sighs> this is stupid. <laughs> it's not I mean, it's a great Mark Twain book, guys. <laughs> it's historical. It's, it's, all right, let's keep going. When that man there, Brace Dunlap, had most worried the life and sense out of Uncle Silas till at last he plumb lost his mind and hit this other blather skate, his brother, with the club. I reckon he's seen his chance. Jupiter broke out for the woods to hide, and I reckon the game was for him to slide out in the night and leave the country. Then Brace would make everybody believe that Uncle Silas had killed Jupiter and hid his body somewheres, and that would ruin Uncle Silas and drive him out of the country. Hang him, maybe, I don't know. But when they found their dead brother in the sycamores without knowing it was him, because he was so battered up, they see they had a better thing. Disguise both and bury Jake and dig him up presently all dressed up in Jupiter's clothes and hire Jim Lane and Bill Withers and the others to swear some handy lies, which they done. Well, me and Huck Finn here, we come down on the boat with the thieves and the dead one told us all about the diamonds and said the others would murder him if they got the chance and we was gonna help him all we could. We was bound for the sycamores when we heard them killing him in there. And we was in there in the early morning after the storm and allowed nobody hadn't been killed after all. And then we see Jupiter Dunlap here spreading around in the very same disguise Jake told us he was going to wear. And we thought it was Jake his own self. And he was a goo-gooing, deaf and dumb, and that was according to his agreement. Well, me and Huck went on hunting for the corpse after the others quit, and we found it. He was proud, too, but Uncle Silas, he knocked us crazy by telling us he killed the man. I'd done everything I could the whole month to think of some way to save Uncle Silas, but I couldn't strike a thing. But by and by, I had a glimpse of something that set me to thinking. Just a wee glimpse. Only that, and not enough to make sure, but it set me thinking hard and watching when I was only letting on to think. And by and by, sure enough, when Uncle Silas was piling out that stuff about him killing Jupiter Dunlap, catch that glimpse again. And this time I jumped up and down the proceedings because I knowed Jupiter Dunlap was a sitting here before me. I knowed him by the thing that I'd seen him do and I remembered it. I seen him do it when I was here a year ago. Oh yeah, the little that he referenced. All right, we'll continue. Cool. <laughs> Is it making sense now? I guess this really made no sense the first time I listened to it. I kind of gave up halfway through, and I was like, "All right, just music time." No, so Brace is basically trying to drive Uncle Silas crazy, and so 
they had already planned that Jupiter was just going to disappear and he was going to blame Uncle Silas for it. And then when they just find this dead body, they have this brilliant idea of pretending that that's Jupiter and framing Uncle Silas. So that, in Tom's words, at best, Uncle Silas would be run out of the area or the country. And at worst, or maybe best, depending on your point of view, he'd be killed. But hmm. that just proves how bad of people these guys are. Yes, it does. Because not only did they try and frame him, they also just neglected this other crime that happened. Yeah. This murder. They were just like, let's make this ours. Yep. Communism. That's what the story's about. Then there was another thundering let go of astonishment and excitement. But Jupiter Dunlack, he was astonished enough. And just as fairly petrified, putrefied with astonishment this time. He woke up half crying and said, Your Honor, I ain't a liar. I ain't a thief. I've been bad enough without it. I done the other things. Brace, he put me up to it and persuaded me and promised to make me rich someday. And I done it. And I'm sorry I done it. I, I wish I hadn't, but I ain't stole no diamonds. I ain't got no diamonds on me. I wished I may never stir if it ain't so. Sheriff, you can search me and see. Tom says, Your Honor, I shouldn't call him a thief, and I let up on that a little. He did steal the diamonds, but he didn't know he did. He stole it from his brother Jake after he was lying dead, after Jake stole them from the other thieves. But Jupiter didn't know he was stealing them. He's been swelling around here them this whole month, yep, wearing $12,000 worth of diamonds, all that riches and going around every day just like a poor man. Well, sir, the sheriff, he ransacked Jupiter high and low and everywhere, searched his hat, his socks, his steams, his boots, everything. And Tom, he stood there quiet, laying for the effect again. Finally, the sheriff, he gave up, and everybody looked disappointed, and Jupiter says, There! Now! What'd I tell you? Then Tom, he took an attitude and let on to be studying with all of his might and scratching his head, and then all of a sudden he glanced up chipper and says, Oh, now I've got it! I forgot! which was a lie, and I knowed it. But he says, Will somebody be good enough to lend me a small screwdriver? There was one in your brother's handbag that you smooch, Jupiter, but I bet you didn't fetch it with you. Jupiter had his boots on again by now, and the thing Tom wanted was passed over people's heads until he got it. He said to Jupiter, Put your foot up on this chair. And he knelt down and began to unscrew the heel plate with everybody watching. And when he got that big diamond out of that boot heel and held, held it up, and let it flash and blaze and squirt sunlight every which way, it just took everybody's breath. And Jupiter, he looked so sick and sorry, you ain't never seen the like of it. And when Tom held up the other diamond, he looked sorrier than ever. Land, he was thinking about how he could have skipped out and been rich and independent in a foreign land if he'd only had the luck to guess what the screwdriver in the carpenter bag was for. Well, it was the most exciting time, take it all around, and Tom got cords of glory. The judge took the diamonds and he stood up in his pulpit and cleared his throat and shoved his spectacles back on his head and he said, I'll keep them and notify the owners and they send for them. It'll be a real pleasure to me to hand you the $2,000. You've earned the money, yes, and you've earned the deepest and most sincerest thanks of this community besides for lifting a wronged and innocent family out of ruin and shame and saving a good and honorable man from a felon's death. 
and for exposing infamy and punishment of the law, a cruel and odious scoundrel and his miserable creatures. Well, sir, if there had been a brass band to burst out some music then, it would have just been the perfectest thing to see. And Tom Sawyer, he said the same. Then the sheriff nabbed Brace Dunlap and his crowd, and by and by next month the judge had them all up for trial and he jailed the whole lot. And everybody crowded back to Uncle Silas's little old church, and he was ever so loving and kind to him and the family and couldn't do enough for him. And Uncle Silas, he preached them the blamedest, jumbliest, idiotic sermons you ever struck, and he would tangle you up so you couldn't find your way home in daylight. But the people never let on what they thought and thought it was the clearest and brightest and most elegant sermons that ever was. And they would sit there and cry for love and pity. But by George, they give me the Jim Jams and the fad tods and the caked up what brains I had and turn them solid. But by and by, they loved the old man's intellects back into him again. And he was sound in his skull as he ever was, which ain't no flattery, I reckon. And so the whole family was happy as birds, and nobody could be gratefuler and lovinger than they was to Tom Sawyer, and the, and the same to me, though I ain't done nothing. And when the $2,000 come, Tom gave half of it to me and never told anybody, which didn't surprise me because I knowed him. So there you have it, Jack. A robbery, double-cross, murder mystery. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Don't start there yet. <laughs> I think we should. Listen, that was the most what-in-the-world ending. I know, and the idea that this is based on a real story that <laughs> with the diamonds of the thing. So... Um, I like the way Twain laid out the facts and the lies. Like you had to really pay attention to the lies because you caught a couple of them. You just were like, well, what? But he said that before. I was like, well, yeah, because the guy lied. Um, I get the Christy kind of crap. Yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking apart where Jupiter came out of the woods as Jake's ghost and Brace carried Jake's body out. It seemed like there were too many people going out and in. But in the end, Twain covered, you know, that with the line and Tom's um, when Tom revealed that Jupiter and Brace had doubled back. So I, I guess I buy that. If I found any fault with the story, because, you know, I like to do that with mysteries, I found three little ones. Uh -huh. First, Uncle Silas confessed to burying Jupiter when he was really sleeping in his bed. What the hell? <laughs> like, he gave, Mark, or Twain gave us nothing to suspect that Silas was wrong in the admission. All he had to do was a couple little words like, well, I must have done it. Who else would have done it? Or Tom asking him if his hands or boots were muddy or something. Like, like Tom and Huck didn't see him sleeping in his bed. And Uncle Silas never says why I was sleeping in my bed. Okay, so that one peeves me just a little. Yeah, but I guess his excuse is, guy's gone crazy. Yeah, I think so. So the second thing is that those two thieves would not just have left town. They knew the diamonds were in the boots, and they would have returned and kept after him. I accept that whatever the pair did, Tom and Huck didn't see, so we didn't see, and it doesn't really affect the outcome of the story, but to your point early on, those two thieves just sort of disappear, and that seems a little like, it's $12,000 worth of diamonds, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. Third, <laughs> the story opens with Tom and Huck having spring fever and Tom being in school. So what? It's April... 
ish 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 when they arrive in arkansas it's september 2nd <laughs> in the full original story tom and huck packed that night now i know travel then wasn't as fast as it is now but google maps puts a distance of about 340 miles between hannibal missouri and asacola arkansas so even walking at three miles an hour for 10 days they'd have been there in two weeks <laughs> How did it take him like half a year? Yeah, how did it take him like half a year? I mean, it was a riverboat. If it was slower than walking, why would you do it? Just get on a horse or something. So I also made a list of the of of uh, Huck Finn, like my favorite narrator ever. His uh, word mistakes. You caught a couple of them. The deceased. The the diseased, the diseased. instead of the deceased. The prostitute instead of the prostitution. Yep. Uh, Jupiter is actually Jupiter, like the planet. Uh, I didn't, I, oh my gosh, I didn't catch that one. I was like, it sounds weird, but okay. The word interest, like to be interested in something, it's spelled entrust, I-N-T-R-U-S-T. I did hear that. I did hear like entrust. I was yep. like, it's because you you stopped and corrected yourself. You actually had to incorrect yourself. I had to incorrect myself. Yeah. Perhaps instead of perhaps. <laughs> Summers instead of somewheres. Tobacco instead of tobacco. Tobacco. Shatter instead of shadow. And I don't know how to pronounce it. It's, it's creeter. It, it sounds almost like, looks almost like critter instead of the word creature. Some kind of creature out there. Mm-hmm. And then there were some just really interesting words. Mumble tea peg. So that was in there. And that's a game in which a player flips a knife so the blade will stick in the ground. So you know that they game that people were playing like with water bottles trying to get it to land on its bottom yeah 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 but it's with a knife oh men boys totally made up that game well, yeah. i have a knife i don't know let's throw it in the air and see if it'll stick blade down that's how he killed someone <laughs> by jiminy uh second handers pudding heads uh blatherskite that's a person who talks foolishly <laughs> Corn pone, that's a type of cornbread. And a blackberryan was to pick blackberries. Wow. So if you have an extra hour or two and want to pass the time with the original, I really enjoyed it. You know, a couple little things on the story, but it was a fun read. And that, our dear listeners, wraps up this long episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Baddie Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf.com podcast. Brand new, Mysteries to Die For is on Facebook. Look us up at Mysteries, the number two, Die, and the number four. Mysteries to Die For is written by me, T.G. Wolf, with contribution from him, Jack Wolf. T. Sawyer Esquire was edited by T.G. Wolf, abridged from Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer Detective. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Join us in two weeks for a two-part adaptation of Wilkie Collins's The Moonstone. Episode 5A is Sergeant Cuff and the Moonstone Diamond. All right, Jack, take us out.